that time of year again when my carefully manicured and effortless diet of healthy food with just the right amount of calories is destroyed in an orgy of holiday indulgence. Ah, but that's okay. The trick is to get back on track quickly. To help me, I thought I would talk to an absolute expert, a true genius in helping to build a solid defense against the relentless whisperings of my more primal self. The emotional brain that worries about impending famine and the need for deep fat stores to survive the winter. Today in episode 120, I talk with Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran psychologist and the author of Defeat Your Cravings, who has developed a program that gives us control while not making us feel deprived. It is not a weight loss program, it is a how to stick with your plan program. So I hope you enjoyed your holiday celebrations, but be sure to listen in to make sure your New Year's resolutions are easier to keep. All right, let's talk to Dr. Livingston. Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thank you for having me here. I've been looking forward to this, Joe. Fantastic. I understand your work history includes you as a psychologist, so a clinician working with patients on who have eating disorders, a former consultant to the food industry. I suppose that means you were helping them take better advantage of us. Uh, I'd like to hear about that. And you. Wrong side of the war. Okay. And you also, as a recovering food addict, and if I've got that right. Recovered food addict. It sounds to me like you are exactly the right person to help us with our food cravings. I would like to think so. <laughs> well, good. Since you do that for a living, uh, my guess is that you are. So, good. I want to sort of admit some little bit of failure here and, and just say that I have not ever looked into this topic before. I surely have not had, a, had anybody like you on the podcast. Uh, I haven't looked into this really at all because I don't like to think I have a problem in this area. And I'm not sure that that's really true because while it is true that I don't binge eat and I, I can stop myself from eating unhealthy types of foods or quantities of foods so that I, ha I don't have it as bad as some people, I do think I suffer from the underlying problem that perhaps everyone back to the Garden of Eden has suffered from, temptation. This business of constantly battling myself for control over my behavior. What is that? What, why am I battling with myself? We're of two minds, right? We have our very primitive animalistic selves. And if you're talking about food cravings, um, people today think that having strong food cravings might be a sign of a uh, problem or a disease or a dysfunctional mind. But if you think about 100,000 years ago, it was actually a very healthy thing to have food cravings. We, um, we couldn't survive unless we felt motivated to learn and act in order to acquire calories and nutrition. It wasn't nearly as abundant and um, omnipresent as it is today. You can... Hmm walk out of a convenience store where you could get hundreds of thousands of calories for almost no money mm. and walk across the street and do the same thing. So, you know, the cravings are actually a sign of a healthy mind doing its job. It happens to be doing it in a fairly sick modern food environment where pretty much the fat cats with white suits and mustaches laughing all the way to the bank when we, <laughs> you know, looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. So we evolved with the capacity to make the acquisition of calories a priority. Um, and now we're in an environment where there are these supersized stimuli that didn't exist in nature. Like we didn't, we didn't have potato chips and chocolate bars and you know, even pizza on the savannah. It's concentrated forms of calories that didn't exist. Um, we didn't have pornography. We didn't have gambling. We, we didn't have all these supersized stimuli. And we weren't required to make as many decisions over the course of the day. Um, willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day. Today, we not only have to figure out how to avoid hungry tigers and you know, find food, we have to figure out how to, um, like, like we did a long time ago, today we have to figure out what to do with an email 400 times a day, right? Mm. Do, do we delegate it or spam it or defer it or... We're acting on it right now. Um, who's taking gender to soccer practice? What's for dinner? What clothes to wear? How do I navigate the I-95 to get to my, you know, my business meeting? Mm. There's decision upon decision upon decision. And we didn't evolve with the ability to make that many decisions 
and our executive functions. Our neocortex isn't really equipped to do that. It gets, it gets to be on overload. And so then when you are, you're faced with this enormous amount of calories in front of you or, you know, this gorgeous naked woman on the screen or something, and, and you know, you, there's this supersized stimulus, um, your, your executive function, the part of you that actually can inhibit your impulses and help you make the right decision, it's just not there the way that it, um, that it was in the environment that we evolved to make these decisions in. So I, in short, I think that the reason that people struggle is because our primitive selves have the ability to push our rational selves out of the way. And in the absence of paying attention to some of these factors and doing some work to really clarify what healthy behavior is for you, um, it's very, very difficult to, to comply with your, your best intentions for a lot mm. of people, most people. That word uh, free will comes to mind we don't really have the uh, 42 years to get to the bottom of that question but i am kind of curious to know what you think about it i, I have this idea about uh, free will that i can train my brain this uh animalistic part of me that you were describing that i can train it to want what i want and then i don't have to fight it so much mm -hmm. do, do you think that's true yes i i do with the caveat that you have to pay attention and it's an active training. I, I think free will really sits on, on top of discipline. I, I don't think it's opposed to it. Um, so I, I think that the brain is really an automation machine. It's very efficient. And let's just talk about food because that's my expertise. Yeah. It wants to acquire calories as efficiently and automatically as it can. And so when 100,000 years ago, we have a caveman, let's call him Thag, T-H-A-G. And Thag sees a monkey that leads him to a banana tree. What happens then is Thag's brain secretes a whole bunch of dopamine the next time he sees a monkey to motivate him to follow that monkey to the banana tree. And before you know it, Thag feels like he's automatically compelled to follow the monkey to the banana tree. See the monkey, go to the banana tree, get bananas, right? Mm. Um, and that was a survival advantage, the ability to not have to think about following monkeys and just have this kind of internal force that says, go get them. Um, that was a survival advantage because if you wasted time, your competitor could get them first, uh, right? Yeah. Um, however, you can intervene. We, we do have the ability to intervene in that cycle. Um, you can de-automate behaviors by, first of all, really clearly defining what the behavior is that you want to engage in. So, for example, suppose I decide that I only ever want to have chocolate on the weekends and only two ounces, and I never want to have chocolate on a weekday. Well, I can say that any thought, feeling, impulse, or image that suggests that I might have chocolate on a weekday is my inner food monster. Right, or my inner gremlin. I, I happen to get thin calling it my inner pig. I kind of wish I called it something different, but that's what I called it. And that way, you've created a kind of a tripwire so that if you're in Starbucks and you hear this voice in your head that says, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You can start your silly diet again tomorrow. Um, it'll be just as easy. Go ahead. A couple of bites are not going to hurt you. I'll say, wait a minute. So now I'm now waking up. I'm de-automating the, the process. Wait a minute. Um, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop on a, on a Wednesday. Chocolate is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm. This sounds a little crude and I'm always a little embarrassed talking about this, but, um, it's an aversive reaction, which you kind of need to fight the intensity of the automation. Mm -hmm. you, you, in order to reclaim your free will and take charge, kind of pry a space between stimulus and response. Mm -hmm. Now you're awake. Now you've got a lot of options. One option is to disempower the logic in your food monster's excuses. The truth is, it's not easier to start tomorrow because what fires together wires together. That's called mm -hmm. the principle of neuroplasticity. If you have a craving for chocolate today and you have the thought, I'll just start tomorrow, and you eat chocolate, you're going to have reinforced both the craving and the thought. Um, you'll be more likely to have the craving tomorrow and even more intensely, and you'll be more likely to have the thought 
just start tomorrow, tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. See, that, that's called a refutation, a cognitive refutation. When you pride yourself apart, you can then look at the justifications and irrational logic that made it comfortable for the automated behavior to take place, and now you're exercising free will. There are about 15 other things you can do in that space that help also, um, but that's the essence of how you pry yourself apart and um, reassert your free will. Fantastic. Well, that's great. And I want to get into more of those tricks. So let's dive in. Uh, and the topic today is, is food, even though I think that the, the, the mechanisms of the brain that you're describing apply to lots of different things, uh, food is the topic. And I, I think the word that best makes the point is uh, cravings. But I think that just giving people more tools, tricks to use to to have uh, better defenses, uh, I don't think is going to be good enough because people have been hearing advice for their whole lives, you know, use smaller plates, whatever. And some of them, some of these tricks are probably, you know, they have some basis, but we can't focus on 4,000 things. So we need to understand what are the best ways to go and maybe what are some that are very common, but they really don't work, at least not at the beginning. And so this is why there's lots of failure that uh, people can have over and over again as they you know, contend and fail against this, um, uh, this part of themselves. And, and I think as we go through that, in, um, and we'll figure out how to go through that here in just a second, I think, we, I think that there is a kind of a sequence of events that we should be mindful of here. And one is that there's, the first thing is to get, control to interrupt that to create that space that you were describing so that I have a chance to have the fight it you know I didn't just lose without even arguing it just happened and I noticed later that I was chewing something but that is just the beginning the second part then is this longer range bit of well how does it work so that I'm not having to contend with myself forever how do I train myself so that what my instincts are somehow consistent or more consistent with what I want in terms of, you know, being a healthy person uh, with my food. How should, how could we go through those things? Okay. So there, that was a two part question. Yeah. Quickly. How do you know, how do you know who to follow and which, which set of tools or techniques to follow? Cause there are in the pundit, punditocracy, is that a word? that we know. live in today where anybody can get on YouTube and declare themselves an expert. Yes. You just don't really know who to listen to. So at the risk of being immodest, and if you please don't tell my mother, <laughs> um, I, I've had over 2 million readers. I've worked with over 2,000 people. I've been doing this for eight years. I used to be almost 300 pounds myself. No one suffered more than I suffered. I went to, used to go to seven different drive throughs so nobody knew oh my how gosh. much I was eating. I, I didn't really start recovering until I was about 40, so I had a good two and a half decades of, of real suffering. Um, I feel completely free of food. It's not that I never make a mistake, but I really do feel completely free of the addiction at this point. Fantastic. So I just, you're not really supposed to say so many nice things about yourself, but I, <laughs> in the interest of maybe rising above the noise a little bit, I just wanted to do that. Yes, thank you. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I really simplify this? So the... Real answer is to start with something very simple. As long as your doctor doesn't say it's an emergency for you to lose weight, most people live by the dictum, like this old um, nursery rhyme by how, Longsworth, I forget his name. Anyway, the, the rhyme goes, when she, was, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. And that's how most people live their lives with food. Um, they... They are bad for a while, and they're really, really bad for a while, and then they try to make up for it by being really, really good for a while. The problem with that, so they, you know, they overeat and then they diet, and they overeat and then they diet. Mm. The problem with that is that it signals your brain that you're in a feast and famine environment. And if you lived in an environment where calories were not abundant, and you didn't know when your next meal was coming from, then the moment that calories were available, you'd have to hoard it. And so we think there's this mechanism in the brain that says, forget all your silly rules, forget your diet, forget all your rational best thinking, forget everything you're trying to accomplish, 
just you know hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt because people are living in this feast and famine roller coaster that they put themselves in that they put themselves in so the first thing is to think about regular reliable nutrition over the course of the day for the first six months or so that you're trying to do this if you want to do intermittent fasting or regular fasting or one meal a day or all the things that other people like to do if you want to do that after that i'm perfectly okay with that for four to six months i find it doesn't work when people are really trying to beat their cravings. We can talk more about that if you want to. It's mm-hmm. a little controversial, but I'm pretty confident about it. Okay. Well, it's stressful. I, I think I'm getting the point that you're creating stress, which puts more power onto your inner monster that you were describing. And so yeah. take some of the power away. It, it puts your body and your brain into a state of mind where the physical needs are the most important and you're less capable of rationally directing yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now the more important question that you asked me after I was busy being so immodest um, was how do you work this out so you don't feel like you've got a whole slew of techniques in your head and you're living under the reign of some Nazi food policeman saying you will not eat chocolate! You will not! <laughs> um, you, you don't want to have to live like that. And the answer to that is that character trumps willpower. Mm. Character is what we habitually do at the moment of temptation without even thinking about it. I walk into a diner, if there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see her tip, and she she says, I'll be right back, I'm just going to go get the menu, and nobody would see me take the money. I don't take the money. Why? Because of my character. I'm not a thief right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it. It doesn't require any willpower. It's just a natural decision. Um, That phenomenon, that function of the brain exists to save energy and prevent us from having to make too many decisions over the course of the day. We automate our decisions as well. So if you choose a low bar, so for example, rather than say I'm going to work out an hour a day, six days a week, if you say, I'll never go to bed without putting my gym clothes by the door. Um, you, that's something you can do day in and day out. Motivation is a great thing. You read a diet book over the weekend or an exercise book over the weekend and you're, you're raring to go. But eventually there's, there's going to come a day when you don't have your mojo, when you're in a really foul mood and you're going to say, you know, screw the one hour workout. But if it's just, you know, all I got to do is put my gym clothes by the door, I think I can do that. The reason that's important is then you observe yourself changing with consistency. You, th- you think, I'm a guy who gets ready for the gym before I go to bed. It's just, that's my default. That's the kind of person I am. And then if I'm that kind of person, what else does that mean? Maybe I'm a guy who does my food prep on Sunday nights, right? Maybe I'm a guy who organizes my work for the next day. You start this kind of positive snowball where... Uh, character trumps willpower and then you have a couple of rules like that they all become part of your identity and you're not thinking about it at all before you know it so um that's how you work it out so it's not going forever the way you simplify things is to start with one simple rule i always put my fork down between bites i um i'm just giving you some examples that's got to come from you uh you know i never go back for seconds um i only have pretzels at major league baseball parks the, the sky's limit in the way that you can can articulate and describe them. But you start with something really simple, like putting your gym clothes by the door, but with food. And something that is so simple that you can, your the the goal is to never fail. Yeah, that's the goal. You you need to be able to aim with perfection and believe that it's possible to never fail. Now, even Olympic archers miss the bullseye um, a good percentage of the time, but when they do. They don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic archer. I just should shoot all the arrows up into the air or into the audience, God forbid. <laughs> they figure out by how much and in what direction did they miss. And then they um, adjust the aim accordingly. They get up and aim with perfection again. They see the arrow going into the target before they let it loose. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to do that. Joe, the other thing that having one simple rule that you can follow for a week or two before you start making things more complex um, the other thing that that does is it proves that you can do it. People, it, at the very beginning of the interview, you you suggested I was a recovering overeater, and I suggested that I was recover, a recovered overeater. Mm-hmm. There's this notion in the culture 
that it's a disease and an ongoing problem that you're going to have the rest of your life, that we're really powerless and we can't do anything about it. And there are even programs that will tell you you have to, you know, be accountable to a sponsor for the rest of your life and you have to go to these meetings forever. Um, I don't see the evidence for that. Hmm. Um, I, as a matter of fact, neurologically, I'm not a, I'm not a brain surgeon or a medical doctor. I've just read a lot of stuff. But I do know that neurologically, the very same mechanism that's responsible for forming the cravings, which we went over why before that's a healthy mechanism, it's also responsible for extinguishing cravings. So if you can form a craving, you can extinguish a craving also. So it doesn't make sense to say that we're broken or we're powerless. What does make sense is that it feels like that sometimes. What does make sense is that because of the tendency of the brain to automate these behaviors, that it feels like there's no us in there. Like something's just kind of pointing a gun at our head and putting us to the refrigerator and saying, eat. Um, but I, I don't believe in the concept of powerlessness and having one simple rule where you prove that you can stop the food monster in its tracks and you can do what you set out to do. If, if you can do it once, you can do it again and again. And that proves to the, to the food monster that you're in control, not it. And that's, yeah. that's a whole different way of life. That's really interesting. Let me jump in and ask you a question about that because um, uh, I accept your position on that. Yeah, I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean to be obnoxious about <laughs> it. Yeah. But my position comes from um, my personal experience. As an example, for Thanksgiving, I like never eat dessert. I don't. Uh, and why is that? Well, you know, I'm trying to balance my calories in and calories out. And, you know, there's just not much nutrition in the, the dessert. And, and I like, I also like eating things that do have nutritional value. And so I, I weigh, you know, I, I overweigh the things you know, like carrots and things like that. But for Thanksgiving, I had some pie and ice cream because why not? Because it was Thanksgiving. Well, I haven't thought about uh, having dessert. I don't, I don't know. It's been nine months or something. The day after Thanksgiving, it went through my mind that we have some leftover pie and ice cream. Of course. Of course, yeah. And so the, the craving came right back, yeah. even though I had, no, I had never, no thought of dessert for the nine months prior to Thanksgiving. Now, maybe if it was 10 years, it would have died altogether. Well, well you're, you're, that's actually not true. It would not have died altogether. Uh, okay. But because it's a survival advantage for the brain to remember how it found calories. For, for that reason, the brain never erases a food pattern where it learned to acquire calories and nutrition. Um, it only labels it dormant. It's, there's a memory savings just in case it should become available again in the future. right? And the, the other thing is that people do better with the holidays. So let's say... You don't have to give up any particular food to work this system, by the way. This is not a diet. This is a diet agnostic system. What you, what you do need to do if you're having trouble with a food is to regulate it in some way. So if you were overeating pie, for example, yeah. you might want to say, well, I'll only ever have pie on Saturday afternoon um, and Thanksgiving, New Year's, and Christmas, and I will only have so many such and such a piece. Mm -hmm. um, that way your brain knows that that reinforcement is only available in, under those very specific conditions. Okay. It's, it's kind of like um, if there were a slot machine at a casino that only paid off on Saturday afternoons, people wouldn't bother going the rest of the week. We, we don't crave things that are not going to pay off. We, our brain learns very quickly. Not well, to like seasonality, like if fruit only comes out in a certain season, then why should the brain be wanting to go to that tree 12 months out of the year when the right. fruit is gone and it's exactly. not coming back for nine months. Exactly. And we learn those things. Yeah. We learn those things. The other thing that's important to know about cravings is that most cravings are attached to very specific stimuli. So an example I give sometimes is um, if, if Sally is struggling with pizza and every day on our way home from work, she stops and she gets four or five slices of pizza at this particular store yeah. and it's getting out of hand and she's developing a little punch. She might make a rule for herself that she never stops on the way home for pizza. And she's going to go through an extinction curve, which is not a straight line, by the way. We can talk about that afterwards. It's, mm. it's a curve like that. Um, she's going to go through that and have bursts of cravings and, and discomfort. Um, and there are ways to power through that. When she gets done with that after about a month, 
she'll be able to drive past the pizza place without feeling those pangs. Mm -hmm. It's not going to have a hold on her anymore. But let's suppose that Sally also used to have pizza with her mom, um, you know, whenever she'd go over for gin rummy, you know, with the girls. Mm -hmm. And she did that once every couple of months. And then the time comes around and she hasn't been bothered with pizza cravings because really the only stimulus that she was exposed to was that pizza place and she extinguished that. All of a sudden she goes there and she just has a stronger craving than she's ever had before. She might think that she failed. If she didn't understand that overeating is not a unitary habit, it's a collection of habits and that cravings are attached to specific stimuli. She wouldn't understand that she didn't fail at extinguishing the pizza craving. She extinguished the pizza place craving. She didn't extinguish pizza at her mom's craving. So most cravings, you know, maybe three, four, five different stimuli that are responsible for them. And if you think it through and you make a plan to deal with each of them, you're much better off. Otherwise, people think that they failed and this is too hard and they're always going to be tortured with it, which, which they want. Well, good. Well, that's good yeah. news. That's good news. Um, yeah. Because we, we have this um, reason to hope that it's not going to be this torture forever. But I think that there's a, a way to do it right that allows us to use this extinction curve that you were talking about. And uh, maybe we we can, uh, if I'm not um, jumping ahead here, you can um, jump. We, maybe we should jump into some of the tricks, the tools that you think are useful. And maybe we should start with the ones that are the you know, the pre-character ones, the, the more of the ones like you're a little out of control and how do you get control? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about how do you become the person you want to be, if there's a way to do that too, or does that just come of acting like the person you want to be and over time you become that person? Anyway, you're the expert here. M- m- more so the latter, but, but acting like that person in very specific ways. It- Okay. This is a rules-based system, and I, I need to address people's objections to rules first. Okay. Because there's a whole culture out there that thinks that food rules are bad. They, they will say that the, let's say any restriction, even a mental restriction, causes an equal and opposite binge. Mm-hmm. And so they believe you need to allow all foods in moderation and just learn to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Um, I think that's a beautiful sentiment, and I think eating mindfully is um, a very good idea, as much as you possibly can. Just like I think driving mindfully is a really good idea, as much as you possibly can. But that doesn't mean we remove the stop signs and the red lights. Hmm. Um, I think if we removed all the stop signs and red lights from New York City and just told people to drive mindfully, we'd have a disaster within a couple of hours, right? Probably. Um, We live in an environment where the big food industry can put chemicals in the packaging that turns off your ability to feel when, to know when you're full. Um, they have excitotoxins and stimulants that represent these supersized stimuli that are just irresistible to the reptilian brain. They, they know how to target the bliss point of the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And so I think 100,000 years ago, we could eat when we were hungry and stop when we were full and there would have been no food addiction. And, you know, we, we would have to eat mass quantities when we came upon the banana tree or, you know, a hunter or kill or something. We'd have to eat because it just wasn't available that often. I, I think today our hungry and full meters are largely broken to a certain extent um, by all the processed food that we're eating. And also the things that they're allowed to put into the food system we're not really eating food. We're eating food-like substances when you're having all those bags and boxes and containers. Mm. And if you can't stand up and say, well, that's not food, at least not, at least not for me, or I'm only going to moderate this in such and such a way, then, you know, if you don't have a plan, you're part of someone else's and you're making yourself just so vulnerable to illness and disease from, um, you know, from this, this really horrific processes. So I, I think that rules are necessary. Okay. Um, the other thing that people will say to try to prevent you from using rules is that they stimulate too much rebellion. And so you can't have rules if you don't want to feel too rebellious. You, but that presupposes that you can't feel rebellious without acting rebellious. Yes, the moment you make a rule, there's another part of you that wants to break it. Granted. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but... but why do we have to be frightened of that rebel inside of us? 
I'm no more frightened of that rebel inside of us than I am of feeling too angry or too lonely or, or anxious um, or sad. I don't think that any of those are a reason that we have to break our rules. They're just feelings. Feelings aren't facts. And I want my inner pig to know that uh, I'm willing to feel any level of dis discomfort in order to follow my rules because my character is so important to me. I'm willing to do that. Mm. So rather than, this was a big part of my recovery, rather than spending decades, continuing to spend decades, because I did spend decades soul searching and trying to figure out what's wrong with me, why can't I stop eating, um, can I fill the hole in my heart so I don't have to fill the hole in my stomach, rather than spending decades trying to do that and put out the fire, I just built a fireplace around the fire so the ashes <laughs> couldn't get out and burn down the house. Nice. Okay. So I, I recovered largely via those cognitive refutations that I told you about. My own personal recovery was through that. Um, I would have a very specific rule, uh, starting simple and then raising the bar slowly but surely. And I would pry myself apart from my inner pig at the moment of temptation. And then I would try to make the right decision. I try to disempower the justifications that it had. And I actually spent many years journaling about what my pig said and why it was wrong. And I recovered. It took me much longer than it needed to because that was the only thing that I paid attention to. I wrote the book, got really popular, started coaching all these people. We've worked with over 2,000 people over the course of eight years. And um, as I was coaching them, I noticed this one particular response, which I would call, screw it, just do it. I got really good at fixing people's thinking. We got to the point that we would get a 90% reduction in overeating in one month and wow. probably stick around 60% by, by six months, um, which is better than most programs, by the way. And so I was like the fix your thinking guy, the fix your food thinking guy. But there's this response people would have where they'd say, well, you know, I know it's not justified. I, I know that my um, inner pig is just doing a number on me, but oh, well, what the hell, screw it, just do it. And people would be making these mistakes, sometimes horrible mistakes, and sometimes the mistakes would cause them to just forget about all the work that they did for a while anyway. So I got very, very curious about the screw it, just do it response. Here's what I found. It seems to be caused by what psychologists would call organismic distress. Um, for example, it could be something like, not having regular enough actual nutrition. So it's not enough to make red lights and yellow lights and things that restrain you. You need to replace what you are when you're not having chocolate or you're not having these big, you know, these big pies of pizza. You need to replace that with authentic nutrition or your body's still going to scream for what it needs. So very often when I would analyze what happened when someone said, screw it, just do it, they'd skipped a meal or they were out of town and they didn't have access to their normal food inventory, they ate less greens, they, they had less protein, they, they were not really taking care of themselves in the way that they were accustomed to. Or maybe they worked out a little harder than they were used to and they didn't plan to recover from that, they didn't plan nutrition to cover from that. So there was nutritional distress that could cause the screw it just to a response. Um, I found, by the way, that it was much easier to give up chocolate when I had a really strong craving, if I had some kale banana smoothies, I would juice the kale and put it in a banana smoothie. And then I didn't seem to crave the chocolate. I didn't get high. I didn't have as much pleasure from the kale banana smoothie as I used to get from the chocolate, at least not initially. But it would scratch the itch and I was fine. I was totally fine. So you would be giving your body some nutrients when it was screaming for nutrients. Yes, and, if, and that helped me to understand, with the aid of Jack Trimpey's interpretation, um, that one way of understanding overeating or addiction is as a biological error, where your brain has been trained that the good stuff, what it really needs to survive, is in these bags and boxes and container, containers. And so by wrestling myself apart and then forcing it to have nutrition, I'm teaching, the, I'm teaching myself to crave um, what really is the good stuff, the authentic stuff instead. Hmm. And that, that made a world of difference, and that made a world of difference for my clients when I started focusing on that with them too. How interesting. But there are other forms of organismic distress. We talked about one already, which was having to make too many decisions over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. And so when I started telling people that I'd like you to take 
two five-minute breaks over the course of the day where you put down your phone, turn off your computer, walk away from everybody, and just spend five minutes by yourself, take a couple of breaths. Just five minutes twice a day. Your, your brain starts to restore its executive function when you do that. Mm. Um, so we get overwhelmed with decisions, not just food decisions. And there are, there are studies, by the way, that show people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math beforehand. No way. It, it's kind of funny. Um, there are things like not getting enough sleep, feeling dehydrated, um, not getting outside enough, being isolated for too long. We are pack animals, and if we have a sense that we're isolated from the pack for too long, there's a certain type of distress we feel, like we're like our survival is at risk. All of these things, which you could form under the rubric of self-regulation, but they're things that most people, they give lip service and they kind of sort of know they have to do them, but they don't do them. They don't take it seriously. But when you really understand that that's what drives the screw it, just do it response, and it, thank God that it does, because we needed this you know, survival drive to push everything else aside and take care of our food needs. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have survived as a species. Right. So thank God we have that healthy functioning. Yeah, our ancestors are the ones that had that drive. The people who didn't, they did not have ancestors. Yes, exactly. Exactly, they, they died out if they didn't have that drive. Exactly, interesting. So the solution is, be really clear about at least one simple rule. Try not to worry too much about losing weight in the beginning if you don't have to. Um, learn how to cognitively refute the pig. There's a, there's a type of breathing you can do that will help, which I'm going to just do a bit for my second, for myself for a second because I'm, um, I get all wound up about this because <laughs> there's so much information. I really want to help people and right. um, I want to isolate the most important part. Um, when your brain is in screw it, just do it mode, it's essentially perceiving there to be an emergency. Mm-hmm. It's not a real emergency, but it feels like we need resources. You know, we're going to have to run from a hungry bear or fight off this tiger or fight off our neighbor or something like that. We need resources. Got to do something. We're in this urgent doing mode. There's a shallowness of breath that's associated with mm. that. There are other things associated with that, which involves the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system that gets us ready for action. Mm -hmm. So you'll find you get goosebumps, your mouth might get a little bit of dry, you might start to perspire a little bit. Your heart rate will elevate. Yeah. And so if you take a minute, once you have this tripwire in place, as a matter of fact, if this is the only thing you do, you're going to experience some benefit right away. Um, If you take a minute, and you do what Lori Hammond calls 7-11 breathing. When you breathe in for a count of seven, I'm not going to do it now because it takes a while, and you breathe out for a count of 11. You do that a couple of times. It's the opposite of urgent doing breaths. It takes you from a state of urgent need to a state of chilling, relaxing, and basically saying, it's okay to rest and digest and think for a little bit about the right thing to do. Okay. So seven... That's a long time to be breathing in. So you're going to take a deep breath in, and then you're going to take even longer to let it out. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You can do it a couple of times. Um, You could actually teach yourself to do that every time before you eat, and you'll find yourself being more present and mindful while you do eat. It'll be easier to put your fork down between bites, you mean? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's the essence of the system, is to set up the tripwire, um, fix your thinking, learn how to um, move from your sympathetic urgent action system to your parasympathetic relaxation system. Um, you know, and then there's food prep. And, um, and if you're willing, I find that people do best when they get a good deal of the processed food out of their system. So... Mm. You know, you can't, you can't use this system to live on potato chips and donuts. I mean, I've known people to kind of sort of try to do that, but... It just makes it much harder, huh? It makes it much harder. I'm less concerned with whether you believe we're supposed to eat animals or plants. Um, I'm much more concerned with are you eating regularly, reliably, and can you get the processed food out of your system? So how important is it to write down your 
food plan? It's it's essential because of the limitations and instability of memory. Uh, if you look at witness testimony as the years go by, oh yeah, the, those memories tend tend to evolve, um, and it's also important when you are looking to refute the pig and disempower its justifications that you write down its reasons for why you should break the rule and then you write down your reasons for why it's wrong. Don't try to do this in your head because you can only keep a certain number of facts in your head at one time and without writing it down you won't see the logical vulnerabilities um, in the pig's argument And and you won't come up with the logical truths that will empower you to, you know, power past the pig. So, writing down is very important. Yeah, that that makes sense, and um, and and that doesn't mean that you can't ever change it. So we have these rules that you've described, but they're they're my rules. I can change them if I want to. The trick is making sure that it's me who wants to change it, not the pig. Yes, yes. I I tell people that the essence of recovering from overeating is moving your difficult food decisions from your impulses to your intellect. And what that means is that if you want to change your rules, that you um, write down what rule you want to change, what's the specific change you want to make. You write down why you think it's a good idea to change it. Save a copy of the old one just in case it doesn't work. And then wait 24 hours for it to take effect. Um, That way, your pig can never get you to change the rules immediately. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, take advantage of you impulsively. That way you're making decisions with your intellect instead of your impulses. We present the rules to the pig as if they're set in stone, even though we know we can change them. The reason for that is the same reason that I told my little niece, Sarah, when she was two years old, that she could never, ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 ever. Even though I knew I was lying to her. Because someday <laughs> she was going to be old enough and get taught how to do that, right? Right. But she wasn't mature enough to entertain even the image in her head. It's the same thing with our primitive brain, with our, with our pigs. They aren't mature enough about food and to entertain the possibility that this isn't set in stone. That's why we say, I will never eat chocolate again or I'll never have it on our weekday again, rather than saying, you know, for now, this is what we're going to do. But we might change it later. You can't, you can't talk like that to a, to a kid at two years old. You have to be right. a lot stricter. So. Right, because they become 2.1 years old and they think, I'm older now and I can do it on my own. Exactly. And they went out into the street. Exactly, uh, which I would have done. Uh, in fact, I did, my mom told me. Uh, okay, so something that I've heard a lot, and you know, okay, I've done it. Comfort food, right? I mean, this, everyone's heard the, the term. Uh, and people say, oh, it makes me happy. It's, you know, there's only like two things in the whole world that make me happy, and that is one of them, and I got to give that up. I'm giving up all of my happiness. You know, what kind of a deal is this? You know, I'd rather be unhealthy and happy than, uh, you know, than follow this program. That's a perfectly legitimate position if you want to. I, I would ask you a couple of questions to consider before you made that decision. But, you know, we fought wars in this country for our freedom. We spilled blood for our freedom. And I think that the freedom to choose to live fast and die young if you want to um, is something that I, w- I would fight for. I, th- I think it's a, you know essential freedom. I think the problem is most people don't consider what they're giving up and the other things that make them happy that they're not going to have. Like, um, you know, I- I've got an autoimmune problem and I could actually lose my mobility if I eat certain mm-hmm. foods uh, and if, if I continue to do that. But even if I didn't, I'd be risking heart attacks and strokes and cancer and diabetes and everything like that. And I prefer to walk in the world free from those worries and um, not deprive myself of that freedom rather than to walk in the world knowing that, well, I can have chocolate whenever I want to because it makes me happy, um, but I might suffer this fate later in life. And that's a very personal decision, where you fall on that continuum and what you want to do. I would just sit down and think through what am I really giving up by continuing to indulge, uh, not just what am I giving up by not indulging? Great. Also, the way that the brain works, there are these phenomenon of downregulation and upregulation. So if you have a chocolate bar every day, by the end of a month, an apple won't taste sweet to you anymore. Mm. Right? 
As a matter of fact, the chocolate bar will barely taste sweet to you anymore. It'll just kind of be required to make you feel normal. And you'll begin to experience what psychologists call anhedonia, because your dopamine system has been overstimulated, and therefore it had to make itself less responsive to normal stimuli in the environment. Just like you could think about um, sleeping underneath the subway. When I was in graduate school, I had to sleep underneath the subway for, for uh, a semester. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of weeks, I couldn't sleep at all. It was so loud. But then you just don't hear it after a while because your brain downregulates its response to that supersized stimuli. Mm. Same thing happens with food. And so what I'm saying is you might think that this is the only thing that comforts you because you've downregulated to only really respond to these supersized stimuli. If you regulate it, if you get at least some of it out of your diet, you'll start to find other things that give you the pleasure that, um, you know, that the chocolate bar used to give you. This is why no matter what diet people go on, two years later, they tell you it's the best thing ever, the most delicious thing ever, because the, the brain is very malleable. It had to be in an environment where food was not abundant. Right. Um, so so we're, we're wired to experience pleasure with a wide variety of different options. You might as well pick one that gives you the health also. That's what I think. So. And, and I, I guess I want to argue that um, you can learn to like anything. If you give yourself time, you will learn to like what is healthy as much as you currently like the things that are not healthy. That's what I think. 100%. 100%. Okay. Well, I see that we're going to run out of time, so I, I want to touch on a couple of other things that people can use as mechanisms. Tricks. You had said things like where you want to create signals that indicate that you're finished eating, things like that. Is, is there a, like a list of things you could mention? Especially if you struggle with nighttime eating, you you want to have a kind of a ritual at the end of the meal. Maybe you clap your hands three times and say that the yeah. kitchen's closed. Maybe you move to a different area of the house and you know take off your makeup and brush your teeth. Uh, maybe you maybe you make yourself some warm tea with almond milk and a cinnamon cinnamon stick, and you go sit in the front of the TV and you relax for a little while. You, you need a, you need a signal that that the uh, incorporation of food time of the day has ended and now it's time to start to let go of the day and wind down and, and stop eating. It makes a big difference. That's great. The trick that I use that I don't know if it's actually good for me or not, but it does stop me from eating because after I eat a, a dinner and the bigger the meal I eat, the more I want more. I don't know what that means. But if I have a piece of gum, I'm done. I don't have any urge to go get more food. So Try gum, I guess, if you can't think of anything else. Maybe brush your teeth is what your mom would say. Or mouth, mouthwash or brush your teeth, yeah. Yeah, my mom yeah. would rather I'd brush my teeth, uh, but uh, okay. So would, you, so would you dentist, but it's okay. <laughs> there we go. Uh, okay, and so you, you talked about safe foods, your smoothie. What I, I use is a, a can of tuna fish. If I think I'm hungry, but I'm not sure if I'm hungry or not, I always can have a can of tuna. And if I don't want that tuna, I'm not really hungry. But if I want it, good, I'm hungry and I'll eat it. But what else, like um, you, you had said somewhere like a certain food textures, like crunchy or chewy things, really are satiating? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole protocol when we look at this nighttime eating. We call it adding crunch to your lunch. People that overcame nighttime overeating, they were more likely to have added some type of cruciferous vegetable to their lunch, sometimes almonds or something. You've got to be careful with that. Um, but something crunchy. It's, it seems like there's a need to get out some of that aggression and we're you know we're designed to chew and grind a little bit um and my hypothesis is i don't have a double blind study to prove this but my hypothesis that is that if you don't express some of that during the day with cruciferous vegetables that you um feel your body feels distressed and really wants to chew more at night awesome okay so i I want to just throw one more thing in here before we wrap up and in the couple minutes that we have left and I just was reading a book on Stoicism, which sounds really horrible, but it isn't. Uh, anybody who doesn't know what that is, uh, it, the word sounds bad, but it's actually not a bad topic. It, the book started by saying something that really I think is applicable here, and it said that there, that there is not much in life that are completely and totally under your control, but three things are, and those are enough to make all the difference, and they are your attitude, your judgment, and your responses. And these belong to you. And if you remember that, then you will have real freedom. What do you think about that? 
I have that book in my bathroom. I read it every day. <laughs> well, fantastic. Okay, Dr. Livingston, yeah. tell us how people can find more about you uh, and your work and maybe get in touch with you. Um, well, it's easy. Go to defeatyourcravings.com, defeatyourcravings.com. Click the big blue button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You will get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Fantastic. You will get a set of recorded coaching sessions so you can see how this works in practice because there's an awful lot um, that went into this conversation and it probably sounds a little weird and cold in the abstract, like why, why does Joe have a doctor with a pig on it inside of him on the, on the call? Um, it's a, actually a very compassionate, life-giving process that takes people from feeling despairing and confused and hopeless about food to feeling um, hopeful and confident and enthusiastic in, in one or two sessions. And, um, and a set of food plan starter templates. Wow. So whether, whether you're looking to follow something you know, ketogenic or plant-based or point counting or calorie counting or really any dietary philosophy that you're looking at, we came up with some example rules. It's up to you to come up with your own diet and your own rules. Um, as long as you're not trying to starve yourself, you can, you can recover. Um, so I'll let defeatyourcravings.com click the big blue button. If you need more services, if you want the traditional copies of the book and you know, paperback, hardcover, audible, that's also available for a traditional charge, but the, the electronic versions are free. Defeatyourcravings.com, big blue button. Awesome. Well, fantastic. That is great. And uh, let me just say thank you for making some time on a Sunday night. So very generous of you. Thanks again and have a good night. Thank you, Joe. This is great. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Livingston, have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my conversation with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Be sure to get your free copy of his book and more via the links in the show notes. 